It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, drinking more water can make you feel a lot better. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ben. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Ben hosts the three films and a podcast podcast which also consists of geographically challenged co-hosts exploring movies. Ben joined us for our World of Apu episode, and Tom was on three films and a podcast for their Apu trilogy episode. Check those out. Ben also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Questions in the first round will be worth one point, and questions in the second round will be worth two points. Then we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today we are going back to 2016 in Japan to conclude our summer blockbuster movie block. Rikishi wins his first sumo in over a decade. Pico Taro releases his PPAP music video, and Pokemon Go is released in Japan. During all this, Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi's movie, Shin Godzilla, was released. Shin, in Japanese, can mean new, and this movie was a reaction, or even kind of inspired, from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in 2011, caused by the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. Other big movies in Japan in 2016 include Star Wars, The Force Awakens, One Piece film, Gold, Your Name, and Detective Conan. The Darkest Nightmare. Shin Godzilla follows bureaucrats as they desperately try to decide who has the authority to deal with the giant monster that has risen from Tokyo Bay. We follow various politicians and researchers as they try to determine the best way to deal with Godzilla. Weapons seem ineffective, and in the end, they need to use the literal city of Tokyo and the people who build cities to defeat the monster before the true enemy, the rest of the world, attempt to blow up Tokyo with nukes. Nick, if you only had one word to describe Shin Godzilla, what would it be? Bureaucracy, Tom. Governance, Ben. Consequence. And my word would be... It's time for question one. What does Kyoko Ann Patterson request after she shows the multicolored maps to the geeks, nerds, and weirdos? Locked in? Locked in. I don't, I'll, I'll lock in. Nice. Tom, what do you have? I have uh, Intel from the United States. I think Intel, no, Intel from the United States. And Nick? She wanted to have an equal exchange of information between Japan and the United States. She actually represented the U.S. And... She wanted to make sure that Japan was going to have open communication with anything that was uncovered on either end. And Ben? Uh, I completely forgot, so I thought maybe it was food for everybody because I could not remember what she requested. So <laughs> That might have been in there, too. That, that might also have been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, no points on the first question. Oh. Um, she puts the maps down, 
all mm -hmm. the uh, you know the the weirdos as they describe them, the geeks and the nerds, um, are all excited. They're looking at it, and she goes, "By the way." Can we use informal Japanese? My formal Japanese is terrible. <laughs> and it's this wonderful inflection point where we lose, or not really, but we lose a lot of the formal, and now we're at the informal, right? The informal is going to figure this out because the formal couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the word bureaucracy comes from. Yeah. When they make a single decision, you see the chain of command that it has to go through. I mean, it's insane. And it even intensifies later in the film with uh this might not be within the first 30 minutes kj but when they ordered the first firing live firing on godzilla there's about 10 people that goes through and i might be underestimating so i think they set up the the understanding of how everything is very formalized and there's a process for every single thing and apparently a room for everything too because they move one meeting from one room to another and <laughs> honestly that, that's also to follow your lead where my consequence came from because we have all these meetings and by the time they like address the press and say like godzilla will not come ashore we smash cut to godzilla ashore you know because like they've taken so long through all these formalities and everything so i think that was a great moment in there where she's just like can we just like you know, break it down a little bit and just like have a discussion here and stop with all the formality because this is, it'll be faster for us to figure it out if we can just do it on our own. Do you also think that was more of her US influence too though? Like, let's let's just figure it out? I, I feel like her US influence was minimal at best. That was okay, honestly okay. part of the, the hardest part of the movie for me was believing that she was <laughs> US American citizen. at all. Yeah, you know? yeah, so like yeah, yeah. that 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 would have been her American influence for sure. Like can we just stop with all the formality? But that was that was about it. That that was difficult for me. But yeah, I would say that's probably her American influence. Yeah, I, I think that well there's a lot there. Um I mean the idea of a bureaucracy when we think of them and there's different arguments to as to where they arise from there's like the john stewart mill where it's like it's a royalist thing the royals appoint these people uh but the the kind of more famous one was an essay by max weber in the early part of the 20th century who talked about uh, bureaucracy as these kind of highly rationalistic systems in which we can import expertise and people with that expertise into a, a system that kind of generates almost machine-like an outcome or product. Now, what Weber also says in that essay is that eventually when something becomes so highly rational that it cannot change, then it becomes the iron cage in which you're trapped. And then he actually uses that phrase, iron cage. Um, and that seems to be what's happening here, right? Is that there's this incredibly um, incredibly rationalistic system that is also predicated upon hierarchy and, and age seems to be a, a marked important thing in, in these hierarchies, in these committees. Um, and it's also uh, every time there is a, a decision that needs to be made, it stimulates a system. It stimulates a machine in the factory that needs to actually produce a decision. However, when you're in uncharted territories, like a evolving radioactive monster appears <laughs> you know now this has become the trap the, the the system that is governance has become the trap out of which you can get to make a decision and there's one interesting thing to, to talk about uh, our female leads uh, americanism or americanness even though she's not really convincing as an american because she she doesn't the actress can't really master an american accent um there is one point where they're talking to the pm one of the secretaries is 
talking to the PM uh, of Japan. And oh, it's not even the PM, it's like the assistant deputy secretary or something, you know, it's one of these infinite positions. And they're like, oh yeah, it's, it's Americans. Americans have a different way of doing things. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not based on age. It's, it's based on accomplishment or something like that. Um, and so you could see there already this kind of idea of bureaucracy is also being kind of culturally prescribed and seeing Americans and the informality that the, the female lead brings to the movie as being something outside of the hierarchies that allow bureaucracy to function. Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Tom, right? The bureaucracies are there because of safeties and we wanted to make sure we considered everything and we've done things before and things slipped away from us. So now we have all these rules in place to make sure things go well and swimmingly but it slows you down. You can't react. How do you deal with something that's unprecedented that's never been before that is a threat and is harming people, right? Mm. That's that's where it, it fails, mm-hmm. um, according to Anakin Skywalker anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't there even a part in here where they're talking about like, we don't even know like who's responsible for this. Yeah, like what arm this falls under in the military or whatever, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, we don't know who's responsible. It's like, this is, everybody's responsible at this point, but like, yeah, yeah. they're just, they have so many things yeah. set in place that it's, yeah, yeah, it just causes more problems. It's article 76, right? They article 76 is where they try to do the, the military action, the defensive military action, but they can't because it has to be a, a military threat that is directed towards them. It can't just be something incidental. And mm-hmm. so they, they can't do that. And the shot is from the actual text. It's like looking through the text up at the, at, at you know, the military people. So yeah. it's almost like the text, the, like the letter of the law, not the spirit is now dominating this system. There was also something where they couldn't ask for foreign assistance from their US treaty until they took a first action. So there was the, even mm-hmm. in the early onset there of trying to get other help. They're like, oh, well, actually, we still got to follow these rules before mm-hmm. we can ask for help. So we got to go pew, 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 and then ask for help versus just <laughs> asking for yeah. help. <laughs> yeah. To keep the Star Wars theme, we've got to Han Solo and take the first shot. And then, then they'll come in and help us out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> McClunky. <laughs> we got to McClunky this. <laughs> it's time for question two. What is the Yaguchi plan? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ben, what do you have? Uh, I mean, essentially to freeze the monster, if I remember correctly, that's that was Yaguchi's plan was to, yeah, freeze him. And Tom? Uh, I had the same thing. I thought there was a change. I thought at one point they said, okay, we have to stop the Yaguchi plan to do the freeze thing. Um, but I thought the I, I locked in that they were going to kind of um, research the animal's biology and use that to defeat it via freezing it to what, 197, negative 197, something like that. And Nick? So it wasn't the one with the freezing because that was named after some kind of sake or something like that. Um, I going to say that the Yuguchi plan was the first one where they decided to just shoot it with a lot of stuff and hopefully that would take care of it all right points for ben and tom so the yaguchi plan was actually not freezing it was actually um heating up the monster all right you guys ready for this so the idea is godzilla's radioactive therefore he must have something like a nuclear power plant in him 
So if we coagulate his blood and stop the cooling circulation system, he will heat up so much that he will have to scram, which is when they drop the rods into the nuclear power plant to stop all power. And then he'll freeze because now there's no nuclear power to go. So ultimately, yes, it was to freeze him, but the plan was to oh, heat him up okay. to cause himself to, 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 to freeze drop. himself. So I thought that was kind of a cool direct yeah. correlation to a nuclear power plant, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's what this movie is 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 a lot about is how do you mm -hmm. deal with a, a nuclear uh, disaster right part mm -hmm. of what godzilla is is he is an, uh, a, a radiation nuclear disaster but i want to talk about godzilla uh what did you guys think about the monster i love the monster um eventually i will say it took me a bit like the, the first version we get that's like on his belly going through the streets is like what is this <laughs> like, grotesque those big huge grotesque. eyes and stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah like, like that was man like this is like, if this is all it's going to be, this is not what I was expecting at all. You know, again, like, especially <laughs> I was like, you could like, I saw the poster. I was like, Oh, this looks cool. And that was not what we saw, like just squirming around on the streets there. But I think, you know, that did a great vis visual job of representing, you know, all the, the floods and stuff that had happened. And so it, it made sense why they did that. But when I first saw him, especially when all the, like the blood falls out, you know, we're at the side and that all comes, I'm like, man, what is this going to be? Mm -hmm. But then watching it like evolve and develop and stuff, like I, I thought how it ended up was great. Like the, the final monster that we get was so cool. The movie has this odd lingering camera work on the monster. Like, it, you know, we, we the camera occasionally will stop and just kind of look up at it, especially at its tail and, and just kind of dwell on it. Um, it's really kind of odd and interesting. Uh, but I agree with you, Ben. Like the, when the first monster came ashore, the first iteration of Godzilla, it was it was sort of. Um, oh, this looks kind of awkward and weird just for our audience. It's it it looks like a fish. And I think it is kind of. It's still it's operating like a fish. It has big gills. Blood's like coming out of its blood gills. And mm -hmm. yeah, or whatever's coming out of its gills. Its eyes don't close. Yeah. Um and bug has, eyes too. Yeah. These big, like they look like fish eyes. Mm -hmm. and they don't close. And like it doesn't seem to have a lot of control over its head. So the head just sort of whips back and forth. I mean, it, you know, it's it's really grotesque. And it's also not that great. Literally a fish uh, out of water, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Um, now, what I thought was, what the heck has KJ gotten us into now? I mean, that's really what I thought when I saw it, the the first iteration of Godzilla. For me, I mean, I embraced it, but it, it was he was grotesque and he was off-putting yet at the same time endearing at the end. So it's a lot of emotions involved with the portrayal of Godzilla here. Definitely something different. Yeah, you know, it's funny, actually, um, Toho, the guys who made the original Godzillas and a bunch of Godzilla movies and even this one, um, they have a rule about Godzilla, which is Godzilla must be a, a creature. It cannot have any human emotions. It cannot be identified, like it, it cannot uh, be relatable from humans. So even if it, the Matthew Broderick, the Brian Cranston Godzilla movies, Toho requires that Godzilla does not show emotion on his face. He is truly a beast that humans have to deal with. Um, he kind of shows emotion on his face in Kong versus Godzilla. They they did say they got away with a little bit more in that movie than mm -hmm. than previous ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose if we're going to talk about what Godzilla is in these these movies, with the recent monster verse as an exception, it, it's always a stand-in. It's always a symbol of some sort of catastrophe, right? Initially, mm -hmm. it's it's the bombs, 
um, which it sort of works in that way in this film as well. Um, and in this film, it's, it's obviously the, um, the nuclear power disaster that occurred there. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting that it, it kind of works in a, the same way that the Living Dead trilogy works as, where each of the Living Dead trilogies, the zombies become a means of getting into kind of social problem, be it consumerism or racism or militarism or whatever. Um, in this way, it's a sort of means, Godzilla's is an access point into social commentary, be it the, um, the way a, a government can mishandle a crisis or the, the kind of brutality that can be demonstrated in war or you know, the, the, the buildup after the war as in the case with the original Godzilla. Um, and so it is interesting to think about how these kind of pop culture items um, actually inject themselves in, into serious conversations and, and the different means <clears throat> in which they do that. And I'd say that, uh, not, and I'll, I'll stop in a second, <laughs> I'll let other people talk, but uh, the, the way I'd say they, that they can do that is they can either go in kind of an alienation Brechtian route, which they typically don't do, or they can go in sort of um, more of a kind of melodramatic route. And I don't mean melodramatic as a, as a condemnation, just as a, as a, a type of genre, as a type of presentation. And you know, if you, you ever uh, watch or have read any kind of like 19th century melodramas, a lot of them do a lot of social commentary. I mean, we roll our eyes to them today because they're very melodramatic, um, but they're also invested in that type of commentary. And I think Godzilla, this, this film, and the, the one from the 50s are both in that, are, are kind of skirting that melodramatic line, even though I think this one's a little smarter. I mean, yeah, I, I like that thought process that they have behind that as well, because I think the character works best when the people have to unite against them, you know, against one specific thing. Whereas, you know, some of, of the whatever 20 plus B movies they've done, you know, where it's like two big things fighting each other and like <laughs> the citizens are just like, I don't know, you know, the, the consequence of what's happening here, they, they you know, they just, they have to deal with the destruction stuff, but in, in these movies, like in the original and this one, they kind of have to unite together. So I, I think it's great that, you know, that just always wants to be a monster and not necessarily something you want to have any um, compassion for or anything like that. Along those lines, this movie is in my mind, actually not really focusing on Godzilla. He may be the catalyst, but this is really a movie about the people of Japan in this crisis and also the world, but focusing mostly on their interactions with a crisis. So that's what I found fascinating about this. And I said, this was a very, even when I talked to my wife, I said, this is a very different movie. I've seen some of the older movies, black and white. This is something completely different. And Godzilla is just really a stand-in for trouble. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's very weird that this is, for a movie with Godzilla in the title, he's not as big of a role. I don't know how to explain when I say he's not as big of a role in this film, but hopefully someone could bail me out here. He, he's, <laughs> he's on screen a lot less. Yeah. Like, literally, yeah. he's just on screen a lot less than any other guy. And sometimes he's frozen on screen. And sometimes <laughs> yeah. they're like, yeah. you know, it's a very interesting way that he was shown throughout the, the film. Mm -hmm. And it would be pretty easy to swap him out for something else and still have mm. everything else kind of the same. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Just the catalyst. Yep. After round one, Tom and Ben are tied at one. 
And Nick will get some points next round, I'm sure, because I'm handing him out. (laughs) We got time for a quick break, and we'll be back with some more Shin Godzilla. Black leather tuck shoes look good on an erudite, energetic man indulging the upper-class nightlife. Gold or silver cufflinks shine with sophistication. Silk ties exude class, whether bow or straight. It may not always be the best occasion for tuxedos, but when it is, they look marvelous. But does all this style help you with your vertical jump? Hello, Tom here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Spring-Loaded Formal Wear. Spring-Loaded helps resolve the age-old dilemma. I can either look nice or leap six feet straight into the air like a superhero. Spring-Loaded tuxedos come equipped with giant springs in the shoes, pants, and jacket so that you can leap up higher than Jerry Rice while dressed like James Bond. Just pick your desired vertical jump and spring-loaded does the rest. You can choose between 6 feet, 8 feet, 12 feet, and the new recently added 40 feet. No matter the size of the room, you can literally swing from the chandelier. After leaping insanely high using spring-loaded leather loafers and grabbing it while a terrified wedding party screams in confusion. Spring-loaded formal wear. Bounce into the night. And we're back. Ben, we're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. If you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? I feel like every time I come on, I'm just going to keep naming director masters. You know, I did Scorsese last time, and this time the first person I thought of was Kurosawa because watching this, maybe kind of a stretch to tie the two, but I thought about Yojimbo where it's like we're focused on like there's a central person, but it feels like it's a lot more about the town around them. That's like those, the real story, you know, like, and I kind of felt this way with Godzilla where it's like, he is the main focus. Obviously it's in the title and everything, but it's really how everyone around him is dealing with him being there. So I just, I don't know. I mean, anytime you can talk to a film master, I I would love to do that, but to kind of cheat and make it a two-part answer, I would also really love to sit with um, the creator of Godzilla, who I had to pull up his name, but um, Tomoyuki Tanaka. And just in the same sense that I would love to take anybody who ran out of that theater on train enters a station, you know, cause they freaked out that the train's coming in. And I would just like, <laughs> I would love them to watch a movie right now and be like, like, this is probably blowing your mind what's happening right now, you know? And I would just love to know like what he thinks about how the character has been developed, you know, and this was the first one I believe that was all CG. I think it looked really it looked great, but I'd be kind of curious to to hear his take on what they've done with his character. Yeah, that would be interesting. This is the first remake of that first movie. Um, before this, there was American ones that took place in either American cities, but this is the first time it's an origin Godzilla story back in Tokyo. So it would it would mm-hmm. be interesting to hear the director's you know uh, view on a remake of his movie mm-hmm. done in a in a in a much more modern way. Right, there's way more characters in this. Um, the solution's actually fairly similar to the to the first movie. I feel like they did some nods to the original as well, like you know, with the destroying the trains and you know, almost using them in this one as a catalyst, you know, as a weapon, things like that. So that would also be interesting to kind of see what he took away from it, from you know, what happened in the first Godzilla. 
I'd specifically be interested on his take of the mutations because that was a new element. It's almost their own fault for him developing these mm-hmm. different skill sets based on how they tried to deal with him. But I, I, that part specifically, how the different forms were handled, to me, I thought was quite unique. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think it'd be a great conversation. It's time for question three. At the end of the movie, who is between Yaguchi and Kayoko-san? Locked in. Oh, locked in. Locked in. Frozen Godzilla. I had the same thing. Yeah, same thing when she talks about we just have to learn how to exist with it now. The Frozen Godzilla. Nice. Points for everybody. Yes, I loved the framing <laughs> in this movie. And I know we talked about it a little bit before, Tom, you were bringing it up. But the, the shots of Godzilla walking through a city or walking through a lake or a pond or a river, wherever he was walking, those scenes were, were gorgeous. The meetings... How boring should it have been to be watching all the meetings? But they used the framing, the blocking, the pacing, the Andy Sorkin-style dialogue to drive the movie in, in a way that, that made you watch. You had to keep watching. You couldn't stop. I mean, the subtitles also made it kind of rough. Um, but I loved how this movie felt as a movie. Yeah, I mean, just to speak on your the meeting topic, you know, as someone I edit full time, that's what I do for a living is edit a video. So that stuff really stuck out to me because like, man, this should be boring. This really should, you know, but like the the pace that they go with and cutting from one person to another and all that kind of stuff, like it, it kept you invested the whole time. You know, it was it was like a meeting was going on where even, you know, people are possibly talking over each other or just like the quick back and forth and the difference in the kind of cutting from when, you know, it's a it's a formal meeting to when we go informal, you know, and they're, it's a little bit more loose with the camera at that point. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought the composition was great and, that first part, you know, when Godzilla's coming on on his belly, just you know, destroying it. But I remember one shot specifically, and it's split like in the middle where you would think you'd want to focus on on Godzilla, but he's the one side, and on the left side, we're just seeing more of the destruction that's coming as a consequence of him coming down. And I thought it was such an interesting shot to frame it that way because obviously they could frame it any way they want. This isn't actually happening. I'm like, oh, this is really an interesting way to show the destruction because we can see him, it, whatever. But then we can also see the other side of this destruction where you think maybe you have buildings that are protecting you, but it's like it's it's carrying over all over and we can see it this way. Yeah, they're very creative with with POV too. We get a lot of POV from documents uh, or from inside a computer looking out at, at the group. Um, there's one time when they get the information about um, about Godzilla's, that Godzilla is basically going to dissolve right? That is half-life is whatever it is, six months or something. When they pass the computer around that has that information, the camera shoots from inside the computer out at the crowd, and it moves from one character to the other as they take the computer, and then all the other characters sort of make the image around whichever character has taken the computer. And, and so that was a kind of interesting thing, interesting way of doing it. Uh, the, the camera also, when Godzilla's frozen or is asleep, as he is for an extended period of this movie, which is interesting. Right? <laughs> Godzilla's like resting for most of the picture. With his um, like tail up too. It was just yeah. like, I wouldn't think that like required energy, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. But like the, the camera just sort of, um, it, it treats it like this grand mystery, which I don't know if that's necessarily earned, but it, it, it kind of uh, has these 
shots that are you know taken like i've said before that are are angled upward at you know at the the creature and not from a head-on position either and it isn't really leaving a lot of mystery i mean we see everything godzilla can do we can see every part of him um you know all, all that type of thing but there's still this um there's still this uh, i guess appreciation for the mystery of of what it is uh, another thing this isn't necessarily due to framing but due to maybe sort of conscientious set design is if you look in those meetings, you could tell different things about the, um, about the people in the meetings in spite of the plainness of the rooms they're in. So one example is the, I think it's the, the fourth floor of the PM's palace. That's the meeting room before the other <laughs> meeting room. And, and the, his, his cabinet they're all in these green plush chairs around a smaller table and everybody else is in um, a, a more rigid chair at a larger table and kind of shouting information at the cabinet. And then the, the woman with the kind of stern face who actually recognizes that Godzilla can probably walk on land and we should be aware of that. She's all the way in the corner in a less comfortable chair, uh, Oh, you know, away from everyone. And, um, even though this room is like aggressively boring, it's, it's you know, as, as corporate a thing as, as you can think of, there's still enough detail here to distinguish hierarchy within that community. As fun as different meeting rooms are to discuss, I want to <laughs> go back to Godzilla, the namesake of this film. I don't know how you guys felt about this, but when it came to actually how they portrayed Godzilla, I almost felt like I was watching an older movie with a lower budget. Like they made specific design choices to make him look a bit disturbing and off-putting at times, as well as even the way the laser work went and the fire breathing. We've seen some pretty fancy effects these days. And I imagine this had some kind of budget to it. It, it, it felt it was a good feel for the film, but it felt like I was watching a bit of an older Godzilla when it came to what they could do with the monster. I loved the way the meetings and the non-Godzilla parts felt like a 2016 movie. But as soon as the monster was on the screen, we were transported back to all of his influences, all everything throughout the years that had, had become Godzilla. I, I really enjoyed how, how, and this happens a lot in Japan, actually, how they can take something very old and something very new and and put them next to each other and and it still feels good and right that's what really jumped out at me uh, kj with this film and, and sometimes i that's why i have mixed emotions because sometimes i was like all on board and other times i was like whoa wait this is the same universe but that's why i was really looking forward to talking about this one this week because it's unique and different a different portrayal of this monster destroying the city you know type theme i yeah i think the first time i felt like it was a modern day monster is when his jaw unhinges you know and like it comes out you know like the bottom half like splits open because that gave me you know stranger things kind of vibes whatever you know it's like oh it's, this is an interesting thing because everything else leading up to that did feel like a um direct throwback to the original you know godzilla and just some of those older movies as well but then yeah when the, you know the atomic the purple all that kind of stuff I'm like okay the, I, I this this seems like it would be happening now but everything else before that did did feel dated but in a a direct and deliberate way 
Yeah, it was definitely a stylistic choice, but the ones that you were talking about, the lasers that just like randomly shot like, um, you know, 80s portraits, you know, self-portraits <laughs> when you're in like elementary yeah. school. Yeah. Like when you said those random lasers flying around, like that was a choice to make them look Very like that. True. We could do much better laser work if we wanted to. Very that's true. That's a choice. <laughs> it's time for question four. So this question is going to break the rules of Talking Pictures Trivia. We don't have very many rules, but one rule is all questions must be answerable from within the movie. However, this one is not. Yeah. So we're going to make it worth double points to compensate. Oh, hey. Which doesn't really matter, actually, if it's two points or four points. The results would be the same. But anyway, here's the question. <laughs> Where is a lot of the soundtrack lifted from locked in yeah I'll, I'll lock in i will also lock in all right tom what do you have i'm gonna say the the original japanese godzilla nick top gun <laughs> godzilla's got the need <laughs> the need <laughs> for speed <laughs> godzilla Lost that love. And ben? Um, if I remember correctly, I believe the director was the creator of an anime series called uh, Evangelion, something like that. So I, I think he used some of his uh, soundtrack from that in this movie. Wow. So points are going to Tom and Ben, because Ben is quite right um, with the with the Evangelion. Evan, how do you say it again? I think Evangelion. It's Evangelion. what did Tom say? The original, the, the original Japanese Godzilla from the fifties. So yeah, Ben is quite right with the uh, Evangelion um, link. I was I was only thinking of the original Godzilla movie because mm. whenever Godzilla's on screen, they do the Godzilla theme from <laughs> the original, which I loved that too because it it didn't sound like a modern soundtrack, right? It, it even sounded like it was recorded on material that just isn't as high quality as material today, right? Everything about it. Um, but but as I say, points are going to, to Tom and Ben, which means we have a tie. Um, I thought they were in the danger zone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. I love how you went to love and feel. I'm like, no. Uh, <laughs> like Top Gun. Man. Coming up on a future episode later yeah. in this season. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's one of the best songs from the soundtrack of Top Gun. What, what is the and song? Coolest scenes, too. Yeah. Uh, we've lost that love and yeah but not godzilla material even (laughs) if i'm stretching it you know like (laughs) that's for congress is godzilla that's when they fell in love so i loved all the callbacks to previous japanese movies the previous godzilla movies so i just wanted to celebrate that a little bit um if we haven't done so already i yeah i think that was cool one thing i um heard about one of the reviews was that the even the opening credits they recreated them like the original ones like they had them recreated for that which i thought was cool and then the the roars we hear at the beginning are the same ones from the first godzilla movie so the movie really starts out almost an exact copy of the original godzilla which i thought was super cool and then just like using the roar throughout the movie as well like you said like having the the music you know, swell and stuff like that. I thought that, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was a great nod. I think it really just kind of shows that he appreciates the original source, which I think really reflects in the movie. The reason I didn't get these 
is it's been so long since I've watched the old ones. I mean, I was probably in elementary school because there was a friend when we were in Scouts who was really into these monster films and had them all on VHS. I saw a whole bunch, Rodan, like a whole bunch of different things. Haven't seen any of the old ones. I gosh, in decades, I can literally say that at this stage of my life. Yeah, and also it seems like a, a reclamation, right, of, of that property, especially considering, you know, now I, I think this predates the MonsterVerse or it it's going on at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. So um, this came out after the Brian Cranston movie. Okay. But uh, when Toho gave the license to Godzilla to the, the MonsterVerse, um, it came with the part of the contract was Toho couldn't make new Godzilla mm-hmm. movies. And I believe it was just something with the production schedule that this one came out in 2016 and was either oh, okay. mostly made or so. Right. So, right. yeah. The middle. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you, you know, you saw the, um, uh, the, the Roland Emmerich one, um, this seems to be like a, a reclamation of that, right. Or even the Godzilla versus Mothra and Mega Godzilla, you know, all the, all those other kind of materials this one seems to be much more about um, Japanese people and the Japanese nation engaging in a problem that is legible to the Japanese people, right? That's recognizable. And, and so by having these kind of callbacks to the original, there's sort of an indication that's also um, manifest in the plot, which is, you know, this is kind of like a, a Japanese story. This is about something that occurred in Japanese history that we're sort of exploring albeit distance by virtue of a, a science fiction premise or a fantastical premise whatever you want to call it but still exploring something kind of traumatic that occurred in in japanese history be it the the bombs that dropped during world war ii or now the uh the the collapse of um the nuclear factory nuclear site um that that harmed so many people as well as the earthquake and, and tsunami and it seems like that the that by by signaling the older film, you're sort of recognizing um, a sort of shared historic trauma that is maybe unique to a people, right? And that you're you're able to then participate in it and signal that and signal that over or around the sort of American or maybe sillier iterations of the monster, be it, you know, in, in, be it he's attacking the Brooklyn Bridge or fighting a metal version of him or, or whatever. And, and I also liked, it's a callback to, to everything you were just talking about, Tom, all these Japanese things. And what did they use to fight the monster? Very Japanese things, right? One of the first things they throw at the monster are the Shinkansen, the bullet train armed with bombs. <laughs> it, it doesn't work, but those are the Shinkansen. Yeah. There's another scene with all the major trains in Tokyo, all lined up racing together towards the monster. And I forget exactly, but I think it's to knock him down so that they could take the skyscrapers that they're so proud of that it's, it is Tokyo. And that's what's going to collapse on the monster to hold him down. And then they're going to use the machines that they have used to build this city. They are going to take those machines, the cranes and the arms, and they're going to use that to inject the coagulation blood thing. So it was also very Japanese in what it was using. It was, look, look, yes, these terrible things happened in our past, but look at all these things we've done since then. And they, and they celebrated with you know throwing them at the giant monster. 
I mm. will tell you that one scene with all those cranes shooting the coagulation and the coagulant, I guess it's called. <laughs> just not, I was like, oh, this is Godzilla goes to the dentist. It kind of looked like he was. <laughs> and then he kills the first batch and then they try it again. But that one scene actually, while it was innovative, I was like, that's kind of an odd scene. <laughs> well, I think those machines are what were used to cool down Fukushima. So it was also a very direct. Uh, got it. Got it, you know, got those it. are literally got what stopped the. You know, got it. What, what got could have been much worse than Chernobyl? Sure, sure, that makes sense. With a little more. <laughs> but yeah, no, it does. It's like <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good dentist joke. Look, a look, good... mom, no cavities. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> have you been brushing Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting that both movies like the original Godzilla and this one came out within a decade of, you know, the travesty that happened that they kind of are using Godzilla as a metaphor for, you know, like with, like you said, with Fukushima and even in this one, like calling back and even bringing up the possibility of a, an atomic bomb being used to, you know, get rid of Godzilla again. So like, like, you know, kind of paying tribute, whatever to the, the original movie. And I really, one thing I really kind of liked about it was, so much of the classic Godzilla stuff, especially all the B movies we see is them just like walking around, destroying buildings and stuff. I'm like, it was kind of cool to have a reversal here and have the buildings like taking Very him true. down this time. You know, like it was kind of like, it was kind of a yeah. cool way to do that. Cause we always just see him knocking everything over. So I thought that was kind of Landscape a cool revenge. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. They bring up the, the bombs, right. And it our female lead. I'm sorry. I forgot her name again. Um, Kayoko-san. Kayoko-san. Uh, she says she won't be here to see another bomb drop the way her grandmother had seen a bomb drop. So there is that, yeah, even direct reference to that kind of continuation of, of historical trauma, right? That this is something, this trauma is something even people have inherited. Going back to the accident, they really did focus a lot on the radiation. Even as the monster travels through the city, he is emitting a certain amount of radiation. They did have to keep track of that. Also, when they were trying to originally shoot him, they said aim for the head and the legs because they were, for, were uh, afraid of nuclear type issues, you know, from his guts and inside radioactivity, not overly inundating us with, you know, science mumbo jumbo, but enough to really ground it in a real world environment. It's time for a bonus question. We're doing prices right rules, so closest without going over, and we're breaking the rules again, ladies and gentlemen, twice in a row. The only two breaking rule questions that I've done. What number Godzilla movie was this? And I have no idea if we're counting the American ones, not counting the American ones, but I yes, have a number. You are counting American ones. <laughs> I'll, I'll lock in. The, what, which one this is, right? Not. Yes. Okay. Correct. What number is Shin Godzilla? Locked in. All right, Tom, what do you have? Seven. Seven. Just to review, Tom, we've talked about the original, <laughs> the Brian Cranston, the Matthew Broderick, Godzilla vs. Kong. This one, that's five. So you think in addition to the four you've seen, there's two others. Wait, ben? This, I thought this came out after. Oh. Or, I mean, before Matthew. Uh, uh, oh, that's no, no. true. That's true. That's true. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Wait, wait. No, this was 2016. Yeah, yeah. So, right, it came out no, after Brian Cranston, but before King of the Monsters and before Godzilla vs Kong. Okay, so this is after Brian Cranston. Okay, no. 
You want to go to eight? Sure. <laughs> I think I'm probably way off anyway. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Ben? Uh, I mean, if I was doing real price right, I'd just go one over, but I was going to say <laughs> 30, so I'm just going to stick with what I was going to say. Ooh, and Ben takes it. The answer is 31 Godzilla movies. Oh. This is the 31st <laughs> Godzilla movie. Okay. So, man. Jesus. I, I had Godzilla, God, the sequel to Godzilla, the American Godzilla, Godzilla versus Mega Godzilla, Godzilla versus Kong. Tom, you got a lot to go. I, mean. Godzilla, <laughs> oh, I, I already listed more than I guessed. <laughs> I have All right, Ben. Well done. You are winning this episode. It's time for Movie Rent. One thing that I found really interesting, which was kind of unusual is that the movie, while it has this incredible critique of, of bureaucracy, right? It sees bureaucracy as, as these cage that these people are trapped in. It doesn't have the same critique of governance. Uh, it, it seems to appreciate kind of good governance as something like that you can, if you can hack through the red tape, if you have the will to do that, then you could be kind of a leader, right? That you can come up. And so this movie does have actually a lot of faith in it, its governing structures. Um, and, it, you know, it has uh, our male lead is Yaguchi. It, it has a lot of faith in, you know, somebody like Yaguchi rising up and being able to um, actually once the the kind of bureaucratic dead weight is literally killed in, in one scene, he's able to kind of come in and go, I'm sorry, no more committee meetings. This is how we're doing it. And what's interesting about that is there's this kind of tension between his authority and what's somewhat possibly formulated as a a sort of democratic check on on the powers of bureaucracy here, or or what is maybe sponsoring the powers of bureaucracy, which at one point they're moving from one meeting room to another. And one of the characters says to Yaguchi, like, um, you know, well, this is a democracy moving from one meeting to another. And I, I, which I thought was a really interesting comment because you'd never think of bureaucracy as being like a consequence of democracy, right? It seems almost to be the part of government which is which is outside of kind of democratic election. Um, but it, it almost seems as if he, Yaguchi, is able to kind of through force of will and a little bit of talent or skill, able to once the once everything is burnt away, kind of go, okay, I'm taking on the will of the people. I'm making the problem go away. Um, I'm no longer calling these meetings. We're just going to do things. And the germ of this seems to be early on when we have that one meeting where it's like nerds and weirdos and geeks and and misfits and enemies to hierarchy. They actually, or enemies to bureaucracy. They actually say that in, in that one scene that they all have to come together. And these are the people who figure things out. Right, and they're the ones who come up with the the cooling or heating method, however you want to call it, um, because they're able to sort of exist in this kind of flat state where it's like anybody can talk. There's no seniority. There's no hierarchy. Um, we're just going to come up with something, and then Yaguchi, now that he has the power to, because the bureaucracy has been killed away by Godzilla, he's able to just sort of jam that home. Right, he's able to go like, okay, this is what we're doing. No more meetings. This is what we have to do. We have three days until the U.S. blows us up. Um, so now uh, Peril has required like a, a person of will to come forward and make it happen, regardless of democracy, that that's really not a, a practicing in, uh, interest anymore, um, regardless of 
tradition or bureaucracy. We're just going to do that. And that seemed to be a really interesting tension. And the movie ends on a really kind of like hopeful note about, about the governing structures. Like these things will survive and do better, that we can rebuild better. Um, well, I think if this is an American movie, uh, you know, you, you might see much more like all the politicians are bad, but the scrappy, the scrappy youngsters or whatnot are, are able to make it happen. Yeah, because one thing Yaguchi never does is um, insult someone above him, even though he is in some ways a maverick um, to get things done. He's he always plays by the rules, right? He's not with the nerds until that nerd group is formed. And that's formed mm -hmm. by the original bureaucracy. That wasn't a mm -hmm. maverick thing to, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to go start our own thing. The bureaucracy mm -hmm. said, let's start a nerd group to get this mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they only have effect once those people are gone. Right. True. Right. And once, once there's a threat that says, I'm sorry, we just don't have time for meetings anymore. Like the way of doing things just doesn't, doesn't work. And it's like, you know, Yaguchi is the one who breaks the iron cage, if we're going to use that, that Weber metaphor for the, the system of power that's going on, right? He's the one who kind of goes, no, we're not doing meetings anymore. We don't know if we're just doing this. And that doesn't mean he's breaking government or governing structures. He's just not doing the bureaucratic thing. And there's a faith in, you know, like the Japanese people, quote unquote, whatever that means. But there's this kind of faith in that that comes through in the end. Like we're going to be able to, to do this and rebuild better. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, all excellent points and kind of ties into, you know, what the one thing I just want to talk about, which was like after the movie was the fact that this won the Japanese Academy Award for best film, you know, like it was nominated for 11 things at one seven. And I just like the way that, we would do you know kind of a kaiju movie or a big monster movie like there's no way that it would be nominated for best picture or anything like that but the way they handled it i i think you know justifies that win and everything i i and it's because of that storyline and those the, the that story that they're telling makes so much more sense whereas here it would just be like let's just blow stuff up let's throw all our money at the effects and things like that but that that did catch me off guard when i was reading about it. i was like wow this one best picture at their academy awards and i i mean i don't I blame it at all she's like I, this is nothing that would have ever happened in america yeah that is interesting it, it, that it was it was appreciated in that way i guess maybe like recent history black panther also got nominated for best picture right and that's that's sort of I, I guess our Marvel movies are like their kaijo movies kaijo you know that, that there's a, a sort of equivalence there in terms of there's this genre that has this sort of um, action payoff and usually we think that's it um, you don't think so I, well I, I think it'll be interesting to see um, Sheen Avengers <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> these kind of feel like the older um, Godzilla movies where maybe there's a point, maybe there's some social things going on in them, but maybe in, I don't know, what's the what time here, 50, 60 years, maybe 50, 60 years from now, we can use superheroes to represent a disaster or something that's more immediate. And Well, we kind of, I mean, you think of Alan Moore's work, right? Alan Moore does stuff like that. Um, not, you know, I don't think the, 
the Watchmen movie was on the level that this is. I think it's just kind of hard to watch. Um, but, you know, it's, I guess I, I might be the only person on this podcast who feels that way. But, you know, uh, you know, the, the certainly the comic books use that sort of, I guess what you'd call kind of popular culture or pulp culture source to make something elevated or higher. And I think, you know, that that's what this movie is using. It's using something kind of pulpy to, to do something more. And that isn't to say that the original Godzilla is somehow bereft of the ability to do complex things. Um, you know, again, like Night of the Living Dead, right? Night of the Living Dead or that, that original trilogy, I think is engaging in, in some kind of complex social commentary as well. They're not really very well made movies. Um, and so I, I, I guess my point is, is kind of like pulp material really can become great, um, can become kind of a great soil for, for really great work. Yeah. And I think even with uh, Black Panther, I think, isn't that when the Oscars tried that horrible idea of most popular movie, you know, like they threw out the oh, different yeah, category yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like, there's the backlash, like it's either a great movie or it's not, you don't have to do popcorn films. And I think arguably Dark Knight is the reason that next year is when they switched to 10 best film, you know, cause it wasn't even nominated that year. And then the next year, there's again, I think there's so much backlash of like, okay, let's open it up to 10. So that, you know, if there is another great superhero pulpy, whatever movie we can, we can get it in. And then, yeah, the, that Black Panther thing happened, but I agree. I just think for the most part, the way that we handle it in America, they don't necessarily qualify for that. Or they Expanding on that a little bit more, talking about Western audiences, there were two thoughts when I watched this film. The, the first one was, I wish I was fluent in Japanese because I'm curious how I would enjoy it without having to speed read through subtitles over subtitles at a super fast pace, which maybe kept me very engaged because I had to or I wouldn't <laughs> be watching it. And the other part is, I think Western audiences are spoiled by special effects. So I don't know if it would have gotten the same acclaim here uh, if it was released in our native language too, because again, the, the subtitles is a, and there is a, a language barrier there, but I don't know if that style would have resonated here. And I really don't think it would have. I, I think the effects would need to be improved. I think if you're going to do a wide release yeah. for an American audience, you would need better CGI. But... Better or a different style? Because I, I don't... A different, yeah, yeah, a different right? style, I, if you're I, not I, sure. I, that was a I choice. think this was exactly what yeah. they wanted to make. I don't think this was, oh, if they could do better CG, they would have changed. Because yeah, each of the fair, Godzilla fair iterations was a Godzilla from the past. Yeah, okay. I mean, even the, the fish one? I believe so. I believe that was... Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm unfortunately not that well versed in, in Godzilla, but according to You didn't to watch IMDb, all 32 of the Toho I movies? wanted to, but... Um, you didn't watch all eight of the Godzilla I, I should have watched all eight, Tom. <laughs> eight have come up um, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or a different style, you know, whatever, maybe a little more conventional. Which would have been um, a shame because what I liked about this, the wide shots of Godzilla wasn't Godzilla, but it was the wide shot. It was these mm -hmm. gorgeous views of, of Japan, right? That's part of what this movie is. It's Japan. Sometimes I was put off by his look and sometimes I thought it was perfect. Something with that tail always threw me off, whether it was just floating up there and it just looked really weird. <laughs> so I didn't know if it was supposed to have a mouth at the end of it. Although I will say, talking about the tail, that end shot, the true end shot where they focus in on the tail and you just see embedded corpses 
frozen into it. Oof. Wow. Oof. That was crazy. That was really. Did anybody have any idea what that meant? It didn't seem to actually Is that fit. Reminiscent of like the, the, um, it looked to me now that this is, uh, you know, maybe this is headcanon, uh, but it looked to me a little bit like photographs of, um, of the H bombs, how we saw the imprints of people on, on remainders of buildings and whatnot. You know, after those bombs of here, photographs from, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you could see kind of the outline or the imprint of, of a body. You might be onto something there, Tom. And, and I think that might just be to say, we will move on, but the devastation was still here. You can't forget what happened. So yeah. I, you might be, I didn't think of it at the time. I just thought it was like, whoa, like yeah, we have it, not seen like blood and, and okay. We saw blood coming out of his gills, but we didn't see people actually like getting harmed physically. Cities were yeah. destroyed. Probably mm -hmm. people were crushed, but that's the first time we saw actual death and decomposition mm -hmm. up close and personal right as they end the movie. Yeah, that, that was my reading that it was it was, you know, a, a, a throwback to that or not a throwback. God, uh, a reference to that, an allusion to that. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, which is Ben. Congrats, my friend. Thank you He's very got much. He got us. He got us. <laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Who was your favorite Shin Godzilla bureaucrat and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. Have additional thoughts? Email us at TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201 467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Ben, for joining us today. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Benny Burrito anywhere, uh, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And our podcast, Three Films on a Podcast, we are at Three Films Pod. We are recording an episode next week. It will be out in a while. Um, Tom's coming on. We're talking about Close Encounters. And Tyler, one of our co-hosts, was on your guys' episode. So, uh, I mean, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, no, we're having a lot of fun with you guys. Come listen. It's a great show. Uh, this will be my my second appearance, and I look forward to listening to it every week. So you guys should listen to. You can find me at Twitter at ThomasLayman15. And also come listen to Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. It's our other podcast in which we jump into the films in a little more depth. Um, Nick has joined us on B-Side recently with... Uh, uh, Star Wars Bad Batch episode. Yes, so we're, we're spinning listen. off into TV as well uh, mm -hmm. because we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So come, come listen to that podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time as we start our summer series, Talking TV Trivia, where we'll be releasing shorter episodes based on the Disney Plus TV show, The Mandalorian. We'll be covering season one, starting with the first episode next week. Stay tuned for our first impressions of The Mandalorian. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I watched these shortly after they were released, but not right away. Um, I was actually underwhelmed, guys. I don't know. There was a lot of hype around this. I was kind of, hmm, meh, it's fine. Um, watch it again uh, before season two to catch up. And then, and then I watched it with my daughter, which was really fun. Like, she was really into um, The Child. She was, you know, ooing and awing over that. Um, so that was the best watching experience with 
um, with my daughter. But the and then I watched it again for this, and you know, it's the Mandalorian. See. I think you waited too long and you probably got spoilers without even realizing it just because it became part of, part of uh, the pop culture. I watched this fresh when it came out and I will tell you this restored my faith in the star Wars franchise after uh, mixed opinions about the uh, recent trilogy that came out. So this was different. And I saw it up to the end, you know, through that ending and that had impact. You already knew baby Yoda existed. I did not know baby Yoda existed. So that, or the child. Okay. (laughs) That is a different viewing experience versus seeing everyone with the plush toys and knowing he's coming. So Mm. I, I think if you watched it fresh, like I did, you might've had a different experience, but that's just my opinion. No, oh, yeah, you're probably right. Oh, my first experience was very much like yours, Nick. I watched it as it came out like Friday night. It was, it was episode, like it needed to be watched that night. No, no need to be spoiled or anything, but I do agree with KJ that it only really works if you have an audience to talk about it with. So the idea that he had his daughter that he was able to then kind of talk about and she was probably excited about certain bits and he was excited about certain bits and they could they could kind of bounce off of each other. So my enjoyment of this, I, and I agree with you, this really kind of made me believe that Star Wars could be good again. Uh, but I think it's also because I had like a, a dialogue between other Star Wars fans and my wife and myself and we were able to kind of like build this narrative around it that's even bigger than... Uh, than it really actually was probably. I mean, like for if you're just sitting there on the couch watching it for yourself and you're like, oh, this is kind of Star Wars, I guess, or it's Star Wars adjacent. But for me, it was like a, it was like, oh, did you see that? Do you remember when that calls back to that thing in that movie three three years ago? <laughs> like that part, that conversation was what was important to me. And I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I had some whiting while watching it. So it's a, it's a <laughs> enough with the fish. It's a, a lovely, yeah, it's it's like 19 grams to one gram of fat, of, of protein to fat. So it's a very healthy fish. Um, but what I did was <laughs> I burnt the fish and it set the fire alarm off. And so I had to run out to the back porch and put the the pan in which I burnt the fish on the porch in the back so that it wouldn't fill up with smoke and and keep the fire alarm going so it was quite hectic um you know but but i so i was watching it during my fish eating and as <laughs> i usually do and it was uh I, I i thought it was pretty entertaining i also watched it I, I watched it recently for this episode i hadn't seen it before and um i'm not the i'll, I'll just say this, this is gonna get me stabbed but i'm not like the biggest star wars guy i don't i'm not quite uh, as invested in this world as, as it seems like you guys are. So a lot of the callbacks are over my head. I, I was aware there was a baby Yoda just because as soon as it came out, everybody was sharing memes of baby Yoda. And so I assumed that a star Wars product at one point had produced a baby Yoda. And I, apparently this was the product that did it. Um, so I, I really wasn't surprised there. I also watched it interestingly in conjunction with, uh, my first viewing of Once Upon a Time in the West. I don't know if anybody's seen that. No, I've not. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's a great movie. Uh, it, it's basically um, the thing that Quentin Tarantino steals from. So, if you like Quentin Tarantino, this is what he's stealing from. And but but it's a western that has um, some of these same tropes that are in The Mandalorian. And so that's that was you know a lot of fun to watch them together. 
Um, I typically watched that movie while eating more salmon because there was more salmon available at the store, <laughs> which I prefer because of the fish oil. The fish oil is very healthy. All right, um, enough with the it, fish. It, We're know, cutting off the fish. <laughs> You know, it's still it has this kind of social commentary, but it's also very melodramatic, right? It's like, um, like the like the person's tied to the railroad tracks. That's a thing uh, that that Daly invented. Tom, can I can I tell you? So until Pat Gavin explained what melodramatic meant, I thought it meant it's something that's dramatic, but it's kind of mellow, so it's not that dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I was so confused. Everyone's like, "That's so melodramatic." I'm like. I don't know. That guy was kind of into this. Like he was pretty extreme, <laughs> moderately dramatic. Yeah, right. This about. was yeah. insanely dramatic. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was between dramatic and sleepy. Yeah. It was kind of mellow. And I was like, yeah, I guess there is an art to that because you're not being dramatic, which is you know a <laughs> negative thing. <laughs>